Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the Carnegie Corporation-funded project looking at sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization in the contemporary Middle East. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Justin Gengler, Research Assistant Professor at the Social and Economic Survey Research Institute at Qatar University. Justin's someone who's published a great deal on, on a range of topics across Arab Gulf politics, the author of Group Conflict and Political Mobilization in Bahrain and the Arab Gulf, Rethinking the Rentier State with Indiana University Press. He's got a PhD from the University of Michigan, and he's done a great deal of work on on a range of scholarly and policy topics related to sectarian politics, Arab Gulf public opinion, uh, and survey methodology in the Middle East broadly. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. It's really exciting to have you on the show. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. It was good to meet you recently at the conference in Denmark, and it's great to talk to you so soon again. Likewise, yeah, it's wonderful. I guess we have Morten Valbjorn to thank for for bringing us together like so many of us do. Uh, He does a wonderful job of doing that. But uh, Justin, can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are today, based in Doha, sitting in your office? What what brought you to, to Doha? What got you involved and interested in these topics that you're working on? Right. That's a big question. Um, I think the, the first part of the answer is that Doha is the current destination, but it wasn't a direct trip from, from certainly not from my, my um, PhD. There were a lot of steps in between, and it wasn't always clear from the beginning that I would be here. I didn't set out necessarily to come to Qatar, to, to study the Qatar, even indeed sure. the Gulf. My, um, my graduate training was in political science, and the focus was more on a political economy type topic with the Ranchi state, not necessarily sectarianism. And I was studying it in Yemen, actually. I had a Fulbright fellowship for a year. And right. before the Fulbright, there was also a year of Arabic language training. And I did all that in Yemen. Wonderful. And it was only because of uh, Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula, actually, <laughs> that I ended up in Bahrain because they had bombed the U.S. Embassy right. while I was there. And it meant that all of the students who were on uh, U.S. government-funded programs had to leave Yemen. This right. was in 2018, I guess, or 2017. Or, sorry, 2008, 2007. <laughs> sure. and, and so we needed to go somewhere else as Fulbrighters. A lot of people chose to go to... Uh, Jordan, some people went to Morocco, Egypt, back when you used to be able to go to those places, um, places where there were big Fulbright programs. And in my case, I wasn't interested in doing that. Um, And there aren't a lot of countries, maybe any Arab countries that are very similar to Yemen. Um, But geographically, at least, I wanted to stay in the Arabian Peninsula region. And it just so happened that I had been partnering with my thesis advisor, Mark Tesler, on uh, an Arab barometer survey, which is a regional survey of political attitudes. Sure. And it was meant to be in Yemen. Right. And so when those things happened and we had to leave, um, I reached out to Mark and asked where else, you know, is there a capacity to do that sort of survey in the region and, and somewhere else where it hadn't been conducted yet, because that was the case in Yemen at that time. Right. Since then, it's actually participated um, uh, 
through uh, subsequent studies, but uh, he suggested Bahrain because he had actually helped set up and a team from the University of Michigan had helped set up a polling center there. And so it made sense um, as another case since there hadn't been survey research conducted uh, as part of the Air Barometer or other sure. international projects. And so I ended up in Bahrain. Um, and it was through that connection in Bahrain, being in the Gulf, doing survey research in the Gulf, that once CESRI was established, uh, my current uh, institution, Social and Economic Survey Research Institute, again established with, in cooperation with the University of Michigan, in 2009, it, it really made sense as a, as a place that was doing high-quality public opinion surveying in the Arab Gulf region when, when essentially there was nowhere else doing it. So that's how I ended up here. It uh, brought me through Yemen. It brought me through Bahrain. Um, but I've been here the last eight years really leveraging this unique survey data that we're able to collect here and, and not really anywhere else sure. in the region. So what was it about the Arabian Gulf that, <clears throat> excuse me, about the Arabian Gulf that, that really piqued your interest? Why did you want to stay when you could have gone down the, the more traditional route of Egypt, Jordan, Morocco? Well, in fact, um, my time in Yemen was the first, it was the first Arab country I ever visited. Right. And so... Over the course of my Fulbright in language study, we had the opportunity to travel uh, to some of these other places. And to me, they seemed very far removed from a case like Yemen, um, socially and, and uh, economically and politically, obviously, but also just sort of the, the, the daily life. So in Yemen, for example, we were forced to use Arabic whenever we interacted, obviously, with the local population and even people in the language school, whereas if you go to Egypt and, and uh, Jordan and some other places that, A, have bigger Fulbright programs with many more people who speak English as a first language, but also, uh, um, you know, more uh, educated and, and open populations, you're not using your Arabic, right? So it's, sure. it struck yeah. me that there were very few places where you could um, spend time and um, actually use the language and, and get to know the people. That didn't end up being the case in, in Bahrain, obviously. <laughs> yeah. um, but but um, I did know that I wanted to stay in the region. And one other thing that really piqued my interest in about Bahrain, having been in Yemen, was the fact that this is the pre-war days, pre-Yemen war days. You had yeah. in, in Yemen sectarian relations that were very different from in Bahrain, of right? Course. In Yemen... Yeah. You had um, Zaidi Shia, or from their perspective, they don't even consider themselves Shia, they consider themselves Zaidis, and uh, Shafi'i Sunnis, and living there in relative harmony, or at least uh, in harmony with respect to sect. And most people didn't know their sect or didn't necessarily think about it. And when I told um, friends in Yemen that I was doing work in Bahrain and they had this sectarian conflict, they didn't know what to think because it was very alien to them. So um, maybe it was the contrast between the situation in Yemen, which for so long was, was very de-sectarian, um, and Bahrain, which was obviously the opposite. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's really interesting to hear you say that. I mean, just before we, we delve into the, the empirical issues a bit more, what, what was it that, that appealed to you about the, the sort of the survey data side of things? I mean, obviously in the UK, we're not quite as, as quant-focused, let's say, as, as some of our American colleagues are. What was it that appealed to you about, about tracking public opinion surveys? Well, I think people have the idea of public opinion as something related to 
um, presidential polling or elections polling or trying to know uh, the state of opinion on, on some topic at a, at a given time. And, and that's interesting and, and that's useful work. But in my case, what I'm more interested in is using surveys not to gauge public opinion per se, but to gauge political attitudes and behavior. So things that sure. aren't going to be changing from day to day and, and then aren't focused on a uh, topical issue like support for this candidate or support for this um, change in, in policy. Using surveys as a way to understand how people behave. And in the case of Bahrain, the real interest there was... Um, the prevailing Ronche state model, which has very specific um, thoughts about how people are motivated politically. And mm -hmm. in the case of Bahrain, it seemed pretty clear that those assumptions didn't hold, or at least in many cases and among certain groups, didn't hold those assumptions about what it is that drives political behavior. And surveys are useful ways of, of getting at that behavior, measuring it, and measuring um, attitudinal correlates and socioeconomic correlates to, to do a real individual level test of, of these sorts of assumptions. So my interest in sectarianism, I would tell people actually Bahrainis um, who were participating in the project and, and knew about the project that I wasn't even interested per se in sectarianism in Bahrain. I was interested in sectarianism insofar as it seemed to contradict some prevailing uh, theoretical assumptions with right. okay. very important political science theory. And so that's why, maybe as you mentioned in the introduction, I've had these sort of dual interests or dual tracks where there's work on sectarianism and doesn't really have a lot of uh, direct theoretical applicability to the Ronche state. And then there are other work on the Ronche state that has nothing to do with sectarianism. But um, I think in both cases, it's trying to understand and work out what is it that, that motivates people politically in, in the Arab Gulf states and in states that are configured similarly. Sure. So for, for people who have not had the opportunity to, to delve into your research, and I strongly recommend that, that people do that because it's, it's absolutely fascinating, what would you say that, that the, the main take-homes from, from this, um, this work have been then, particularly with regard to, to Bahrain and, and these, these assumptions that you say are, are not necessarily appropriate? Hmm, the take-homes. Um, well, in the case of Bahrain, certainly the take-home is that um, many other things motivate people politically than simply their pocketbooks, right? And so that was sure. sort of the, the overall test of, of, or that was the overall focus of my PhD dissertation and um, some subsequent work as well, trying to understand what's the relative importance of, of economic buy-off or, or public goods provision or yeah. welfare provision by the state uh, um, compared to, let's say, religious motivations or um, uh, political grievances rooted in discrimination or perceived discrimination. And I think the conclusion of that study is that in the case of um, Bahrain, at least, uh, the economic motivations are not as strong as these non-material motivations. And when they are, uh, when they do appear, they really appear only among a subset of citizens, which is the Sunni uh, minority and, and also the, the de facto 
support group of the of the regime, right? And so you have sure. this group of people who do benefit materially from the regime, and in that case, it, it you might be correct in saying that um, that sort of welfare provision or that sort of patronage provision does lead to the expected economic or political outcome, which is um, deference or, or acquiescence or however you want to term it. But then you have this other group of people um, who aren't motivated by those same concerns. And then the question becomes, well, what is it that motivates um, the rest of Bahraini citizenry, which is uh, the Shia population? Yeah. And so there's additional work that's come out of those types of questions as well. And I think for me, the, the, the real interesting stuff that you've been doing is, is right at that interaction of, of perhaps the, the rentier model and the, the sort of the move towards exploration of, of sectarian identities. So, so the, the chapter in, in Fred Wary's book, for example, this sort of the bringing the two together, the rentierism and the sectarianism, I think that's really the interesting stuff that, that you've been contributing to. So can you just tell us a little bit about, about that type of thing that you've been looking at, please? Sure. So I think the, the overall question is the same. The, the question is, what is it that motivates people um, in their political behaviors to either support a government or um, remain apolitical or yeah. to be oppositional to a government? And uh, that paper looks at the role of practices for stability and security in order to test this um, argument or um, claim that you hear thrown around sometimes that states are effectively able to, to scare their populations into political acquiescence. Um, and so we used survey data that was collected across five of the six Gulf states, although I think that paper might have been an early version when uh, or data from Saudi Arabia and one other state weren't available. Right. But um, it explored these relationships across the countries into the priorities that people have for politics. So do people prioritize stability or do people prioritize um, economic issues or economic development? Sure. Or do people prioritize political voice? And how do those priorities affect the extent to which um, they're able to be bought off politically? And the connection to sectarianism there, of course, is that in cases like Bahrain and, and Saudi Arabia and uh, to a lesser extent some other cases in, in the Gulf and in the region, a big source of instability or at least claimed instability and insecurity is sectarianism or sectarian uh, politics by uh, sectarian actors. So that wow. could be domestic sectarian actors like Hezbollah or um, in the case of Bahrain, Shia opposition groups, or it could be the threat posed by Iran. But the point is that this sort of sectarian rhetoric or this sectarian framing on the parts of governments, is it true that it really does buy them some degree of uh, political legitimacy or political acquiescence on the part of, of citizens? And it turns out that not only in Bahrain, but across the region, you do find this relationship that citizens who are more important or more concerned about security and stability, whether because of sectarianism or because of something else, um, are more likely to be deferential to the state. And that deference has nothing to do with their economic situation. And so what it means is that the state can effectively replace economic patronage for these sorts of citizens with just providing the intangible benefit of security and stability. And so it's a cheaper way of, of, of procuring political support in the population if you don't have to give people 
um, goods and services, but you simply provide this intangible benefit of protecting them from real or imagined uh, adversaries yeah. within the country or outside the country, then it's a real uh, economic boon for the for the state. Of course, especially a state like Bahrain, yeah. which is facing uh, real constraints on its ability to to patronize citizens. Exactly, and I think it, it, it's really interesting. We've all heard, I'm sure, the, the the perceptions and the tales of people who who've come from from the Gulf and Gulfy citizens who've said, "Oh, well, we don't want to end up like Syria, or we don't want to end up like Yemen, so we're going to support the yeah, regime, of course. whatever cost." So it's really interesting that that this this paper, this chapter in in the book, really sort of supports that argument but rather than relying on just individual interviews it's got a substantive data set behind it exactly and, and that relates to your previous question about why use public opinion surveys i think this is a case of using what is effectively a public opinion survey um for a purpose which has a, a larger theoretical purpose, right? So we're not sure. asking people yeah. about their opinion towards particular things, but we're using the surveys to measure behaviors, to measure attitudes, and then to use the relationships between those behaviors and attitudes to, to make or to test theoretical claims um, in political science or or elsewhere that's, that um, that are broader than simply looking at some specific issue area where you typically yeah. associate with public opinion surveys. Exactly, and that's where it's absolutely fascinating and really important what you're doing. So it's yeah, it's really really fascinating to see what you're what you're working on. Justin, recently I received something in the post, and it was a uh, a copy of a report that you've been working on, a copy of a uh, of a Rand report entitled "Countering Sectarianism in the Middle East," and you contributed a chapter to that. And what I think is interesting is that you you take the the work that you've been doing on on this sort of intersection of rentier politics, sectarianism, and and a number of the themes that you've been exploring, and you you kind of tip it on its head to look at what we can learn from this with regard to actually um, countering sectarian challenges. And I think it's really, really a fascinating piece. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that came about and and what you seek to do in the chapter, please? Yeah, so I think, as you say, the organizers of that project at RAND were really interested in maybe moving beyond what had then been a pretty popular exercise, which was to look at the drivers of sectarianism. There are several edited volumes, which I'm sure you know very well, um, and other work which was looking at trying to explain this uh, real upsurge in, in sectarian rhetoric and, and sectarianism across the region after the Arab Springs. Um, and instead of doing that, they were more interested in the reverse, or at least drawing the opposite lessons, which is, okay, if these things cause sectarianism, then how can we um, draw out drivers of resilience towards sectarianism, which I guess the opposite side of the coin. Sure. And so in my case, I used um, individual level data from Bahrain. In fact, it's the same data that I used for the uh, project with Fred that, that we just spoke about. It's just Wonderful. using it for a different purpose and sure. using different, um, different indicators in the data to look at uh, how geographical segregation of communities in Bahrain, the two confessional communities, relates to economic provision. Because if the argument is that sectarian politics is driven by inequality, or at least in part by inequality, mm-hmm. and that's my argument in the case of Bahrain, then looking at patterns of settlement and the way that public goods are distributed across these uh, geographical sediments, which are 
dominated by one group or the other is a good way to A, gain insight into that question, whether or not it's even the case, and then B, to try to draw out some conclusions about how you can then counteract um, that sort of unequal distribution, which would then in turn reduce um, sectarian tensions. So this report is, is available online, but you can also order a copy. So it, again, it's it's something that is, is well worth a read. But just as a bit of a teaser, what would you suggest the main sort of the main conclusions that you found were from the, the case of Bahrain and from the 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 mapping exercise that you do in some parts of the chapter, looking at the the settlement of, of Bahrainis from different confessional backgrounds. What are the, the, the sort of conclusions that you found, would you say? So one of the big products from my dissertation research was a sectarian map of Bahrain. And that's something that interested a lot of people, I think, mostly because a map hadn't existed before that. And so what it does is it uses data from the interviews and codes neighborhoods, or in, in Bahrain they're called block numbers, according to the estimated sectarian composition as estimated from the survey itself, right? Yeah. So if three people are interviewed in a neighborhood, all three were Sunni, for example, then the estimate is that it's 100% Sunni neighborhood. Obviously, that's not perfect um, proxy, but it works well enough to try to make some general conclusions. And when you do that exercise, what you find is a visual representation or confirmation of a fact that ordinary Bahrainis know very well, which is that the the country is highly segregated. Um, And you know immediately based on outward markers of identity like flags or like uh, what newspapers out front of the house or what does the house look like, whether you're in one or the other uh, types of neighborhoods. And there are relatively few mixed urban spaces where uh, the, the composition is really ambiguous. And so the main finding of this survey, which sort of update to my 2009 dissertation survey, is to layer on top of that segregation the question of goods distribution to test another claim, which Bahrainis would tell you they know very well, which is that the Shia-dominated neighborhoods in Bahrain are underserved in terms of public goods provision compared to uh, Sunni-dominated areas. And so the conclusion you could draw from that is that from the state's perspective, they're they're, uh, disproportionately serving their political strongholds, which you might expect in any number of places, not only in uh, (laughs) Arab autocracies, right? Sure. Um, And so the the RAND paper really empirically delves into this question of, okay, well, what does it mean if you were born or if you live in a neighborhood that's 100% composed by one community? What does that imply about your likelihood of of uh, being wealthy or working in the public sector or or getting these other sorts of benefits which are supposed to accrue to all Ranchier citizens or citizens of Ranchier states, but we know in practice don't. Yeah. And this, the results are very striking. I don't have the paper here in front of me, but um, the difference between a Sunni Bahraini living in a 100% Sunni neighborhood versus a Shia Bahraini living in a 100% Shia neighborhood in terms of the likelihood of being employed in the public sector is enormous. Right. Um, and likewise, in terms of other outcomes that we can observe, like household income, like subjective ratings of economic satisfaction, again, you have this wide gulf between communities that are majority Sunni and majority Shia. And what you can also observe in the data is that the determining factor is not the identity of the respondent, it's the it's the characteristic of the neighborhood. Sure. So if you have a Shia respondent, for example, 
uh, or a Shia Bahraini living in a majority Sunni district, he benefits or she benefits the same as would a Sunni living in that district because the goods are provided at the neighborhood level, right? The state yeah. is making these judgments, not based at the individual level, do I give this person services or goods or not, but does this neighborhood need a new hospital or does this neighborhood need a new school or, or some other um, broad public goods proxies? Sure. So that means that there's a real, in the case of Bahrain, incentive then to relocate to neighborhoods, which yeah. then just reinforces this sectarian uh, segregation. Because if you're a Sunni living in a Shia neighborhood or even a, a mixed neighborhood, you're really losing out on what economic benefits you might capture if you were in a, a, a known stronghold, let's say, a political stronghold. And so there are very strong incentives to relocate. And, and likewise, for those people living in underserved neighborhood, there's an incentive to uh, relocate to a more mixed area where you might be able to capture additional economic mm -hmm. benefits. And I think it's it's really interesting that you you challenge a number of the sort of the prevailing assumptions and the prevailing ways of looking at these questions, which I think is really important that we know how to understand sectarianism, we know how to understand the emergence of sect-based violence, sect-based politics. And I think what you're doing is it's really important in forcing scholars working in the field to think differently about what comes next. And Justin, mm -hmm. I'm conscious that we've we've taken up a great deal of your time, but if if I can ask you for just one more answer, what would you say to, to other scholars in the field from what you've done? If you could encourage people to look in a particular direction, to try and push debates further, what would you suggest? Uh, I would Sorry, say there I'm putting you on the spot here, two, aren't I? No, I think it's fine. I think there are sort of two ways I think one might go, or two ways I could see at least. One is to see what is the new sectarianism, right? So this would sort of go down the path of, of extending the, uh, the work I do in the Carnegie paper, which is if sectarianism is simply one way to scare people, Right, or at least yeah. in many cases, if it's if it's state-sponsored sectarianism, it's one way to scare populations um, into acquiescing to political decisions or or policies. For example, uh, fiscal reform now going on in the Gulf, uh, which is something I've been writing about. Um, if if sectarianism is just that, and it could just be something else, as 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 much as sectarianism. If there's nothing intrinsic about sectarianism itself, then the question becomes: Okay, well. As regional conditions change and, and rhetoric changes, what is the new thing that um, might emerge in place of sectarianism or at least become more prominent as states sort of switch their strategy to something that's more uh, resonant in the current time? And there, I think, an interesting question is the issue of nationalism, right? Sure. Certainly in the yeah. Gulf, um, which is my focus, we have the Qatar blockade, which is premised on a real... Um, militaristic nationalism on the part of some Gulf countries. We see uh, the Yemen war, which again is premised on um, nationalism, especially in the UAE, wanting to, to be projected on a, a regional level. Um, others like Madawi al-Rashid have also um, uh, talked about this uh, increase or, or re-emergence of militaristic nationalism. And so I think there's one way of extending this agenda where you look at what is the new mechanism of, of avoiding political or uh, popular pressure for political reform if 
uh, tensions around sectarianism or rhetoric around sectarianism recedes in, in the popular imagination. So if you need something else, and I think um, their nationalism is, is an interesting question. The other way I think it could go different way, which is to think of sectarianism as representative of uh, inequality, right, or, or right. the drivers of sectarianism rather than sure. the uh, motivations of, of creating sectarianism. So if, if we think of sectarianism as a more organic process, not driven top-down by states, but driven by sort of legitimate economic, structural grievances, uh, political uh, discrimination, structural discrimination, inst institutionalized in rigged voting systems and, and gerrymandering and these sorts of things that we see in places like Bahrain, then um, another way to proceed would be to look at other forms of inequality and how that might also impact um, attitudes towards political change or towards specific policies. And here, I think I'm going down this road a bit in, in looking at questions related to fiscal reform in the Gulf. So, so right. the, the introduction of taxation, right, for the yeah. first time in history, um, the scaling back of the Ranchier state, the scaling back of of welfare benefits, and um, how do people think about that, those processes, and how are views of those processes affected by being a relative winner or loser in the Ranchier system, right? So it right. might not be along sectarian lines, but it might be along tribal lines, it might be along um, some other relevant ascriptive lines in a society. Sure. Opposition to, for example, these sorts of changes among people who uh, belong to certain communities who haven't uh, done as well, they haven't fared as well during the good days, so to speak, of the raunchy system where, where uh, before the um, more recent push towards fiscal reform. So I have a few things in the pipeline under review looking at, um, looking at this question of inequality. I also published something uh, last year with Jocelyn Mitchell looking at this in the case of Qatar, but I think uh, broadening the question out to inequality and sectarianism as a specific case of, of political or economic inequality is another fruitful path for researchers. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for, for giving us some of your valuable time. It's been wonderful to talk to you again, Justin, and really insightful stuff. And I'm sure all our listeners are going to take a great deal out of this conversation. So thank you so much. And uh, I hope to catch up with you again sometime soon. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for doing this. And I hope it was uh, useful for people listening. I'm sure it was. Thank you very much, Justin. And until the next time, goodbye.